Good morning. Uh, Our scripture this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brandon. All right, let's... uh... Let's go ahead and get into it this morning. I, uh, I'm really excited to be worshiping with you. Just a quick kind of public service announcement. Um, there is, if you tracked along with the reading, there is a note on se- sexual sin, sexual immorality in this passage. And so we're going to keep that all very much uh, PG in this conversation as much as we can. And, uh, and so just if you have kiddos and they're in the room and you want help or need help kind of talking through that with them or kind of knowing how to navigate that conversation afterwards, just want to kind of invite, uh, invite you to ask for help on that, okay? You don't have to know all the right answers or know the right way to say things, um, and so we want to help on that, okay? Just want to give you a heads up. If you have kiddos and you're like, I don't want to even have a PG conversation, then you can um, just go to the bathroom and keep, keep, keep hiding somewhere else. I don't know. Do whatever you need to do on that. All right. Um, I want, my name is Will. I'm, I'm, one, I'm one of our pastors here at City Church, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad to be with you. And so we, we're getting into Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. While you're doing that, um, there's also Bibles in the back if you need, if you need to grab one. But while, while you're turning there, there's a, a guy named David Foster Wallace, and he delivered what some would call the most famous commence, commencement speech ever uh, at Kenyon College, and it was in 2005. This, this speech in particular has been viewed and like shared millions of times. It was turned into a book, and the book is now being sold, okay? And so uh, it's a very popular speech. And it's really interesting. It begins with, this, uh, with him saying that there's two young fish swimming along, and they pass an older fish. And the older fish nods and says, morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish keep swimming, and one eventually asks the other, what's water? Except he says it a little bit more colorfully, like in his speech. So uh, we're, we're going to keep it, again, PG here. But uh, the, the young fish asks the other one, what, what's water? And... Uh, he tells that story to explain that some of the most fundamental parts of life are the things that we are swimming in without even thinking about it. Some of the things that are most fundamental to life, we are actually swimming in them and don't even 
realize it. It's like water for a fish. Waters don't, uh, fish don't think about water, okay, unless they're out of it or they're Nemo or uh, Dory, I guess. But uh, surprisingly, the place that he lands in this speech, he's not a Christian, so the, the, and it's, not a, it's not even in a Christian context. He's a liberal arts college. And so the interesting thing is that he lands in the topic of worship. That's where the speech actually makes its way towards, if you've heard it. And here's a quote. He says, because here's something else that's weird. I think we have it up here. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Really fascinating, right? So this is where uh, this, this dude la- lands, and he's not a Christian. He's just kind of looking at life and trying to understand it and take it all in. And he goes on to explain that what you choose to worship is of the utmost importance for your life. There, there may not be a greater choice that you make in your lifetime than what you worship. And uh, it, ironically, most of that happens unconsciously. That's his whole tension in the speech is that it's of the utmost importance what you worship, but it's happening unconsciously. And we need to be, in fact, conscious about what we're worshiping. That's what he's lobbying for these college students to, to ultimately discern through their education is what are you worshiping? And the scriptures actually consistently point to a contrast between what it looks like to worship the God of the Bible and other gods of our own making. That is actually just a theme that runs all the way through. If you just track from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to see this theme of worship. It's a big part of our vision as a church. We're pursuing a revival of joyful worship. We're, we studied Ephesians 1 through 3 earlier in uh, 20, at the end of 2019, and that was what we called the foundations of worship. And then at the, after 2020, the, the, since January, we've been studying Ephesians 4 through 6 because Paul makes a turn in that letter to go from what you, the foundations of your worship into uh, how you are walking in that worship, okay? So that's the turn he makes. That's the turn we made. And then in the passage today, what we see is the stride we want to find in our walk of worship is the stride of love, Okay? Our lives are to be marked by this stride of love. And that stride of love is particularly in contrast with the stride of lust. So that's what we want to draw out, how these two different strides are uh, really in conflict. And especially what I want you to see this morning, okay? So lean into this with me. If you're going to lean into something today, okay, it would be that love and lust are incompatible. The love that the scriptures describe that we are to walk in is incompatible with lust. Okay, we're going to get into what that is. Uh, And so, but the reality that I want you to, to, to lean into is that they can't exist together. Love and lusts are like light and dark. Light and dark are not, they're not friends. They, they never are together, right? Darkness is the absence of light. So they're, they're by, by definition, they, they can't be together. And, uh, and that's what love and lust are like. And in Jesus, you've become children of light. You've, you saw it in the text. And so you want to live, we want to live in the light as a community. And so when you walk in love, you walk from lust, okay? If you have to just kind of let something marinate in your mind this week that the Spirit might use to draw back this conversation uh, into your mind, when you walk in love, you walk from lust, and you're always walking in one of these, okay? And so uh, we're going to jump right into it and track along from starting in Ephesians 5, verse 1. And you're going to see sort of a pattern of love emerge, a problem with lust, and then a process for making a turn there. Okay, so it's 
uh, a pattern and a problem and a process. But check it in verse one. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And we're going to read and talk, read and talk. That's kind of how we're going to work through this passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And right out of the gates now, Paul, he's uh, making this sort of crazy command, if you think about it. Like, read that command and actually think about doing it. Okay, because a lot of times we just read it and we're like, okay, he's, this guy up here is going to explain it and we're going to figure out how we can kind of do something like that. But read that and take that in, that command. He's telling you, imitate God. Be imitators of God. And this would just be a crushing command. Like if you, if you really tried to do it, like if you tried to do it in some version of what we, we would come up with or what I would come up, my version of who God is naturally, okay, it would be crushing. So how is it that we're supposed to imitate him? How can we actually do this? Because God is omniscient, okay? I don't know if you know that. He's all-knowing, okay? So should I then just try to be all-knowing? Is that how I'm going to try to imitate God? By knowing everything there is to know? That's a really discouraging, if you just think about the number of average pace of reading and the number of books you could get in every year, you're not going to finish them, okay? Even if you do book summaries, okay, which are helpful sometimes, you're not going to get there. You're not going to get all of the knowledge, okay? Uh, Omnipotence, God is all-powerful, okay? The scriptures say his arm is never shortened that he can't accomplish something, okay? So are you supposed to imitate his omnipotence? Are you supposed to be all-powerful, or maybe uh, omnipresent, okay? My wife, she was sick this week. She had the flu, and we have a f- five or six, we have a six-week-old daughter. She was like five and a half weeks this old, this week. Um, and so she, we have a six-week-old daughter, and uh, I was trying to be omnipresent just with two kids, and I was like, how do you do this all day? You know, <laughs> it was, uh, my mother-in-law came quickly, okay, for reinforcements, okay? So we, we lived. Um, my children are alive. And, um, and so, uh, it's not the incommunicable attributes about God. Those are, those are incommunicable. That means he doesn't, God doesn't share those with us. He doesn't share those attributes with us. We're not, we're not omnipresent. We're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. You know that. Or you're, you're going to learn it soon, okay? So how then should we imitate him? We, he, he tells us imitate him as, as beloved children. So the standing that you have is going to be relevant to this. But imitate him as beloved Children, And so I want you to see that it's as beloved children. We don't imitate him to become beloved children. Okay, this is, this is important to note. Okay, this is at the heart of the gospel that we become children of God and then we learn to imitate him as children. Okay, and so this actually, uh, this, I see this happening in my household all the time. I have a two and a half year old girl and um, she imitates my wife all the time, okay? I actually, I got it on video. It's not a great video quality. Don't judge me on that, okay? But just, just see what this little girl is doing, okay? And note that we have never at any point taught her to do any of these things, okay? So just watch this video. What do you got? Is your Bible? Who, who are you being like right now? Mom. Mommy. That is a cute girl. All right. I'm biased, but that girl is cute. But, but I watched, she, she strolled into, she strolled into the kitchen, toting a Bible, toting a baby, and uh, just went about flipping through that Bible, doing her thing, and, and she was very clearly imitating. Was she doing it perfectly? No. She was not imitating her mom perfectly at all. 
Um, but she was, she was doing a lot of things that looked a lot like her mom. And uh, I just love that video because I love that sweet girl. But um, do you think that her status as my daughter was uh, dependent on her, her quality of imitation in that moment? <laughs> First of all, we don't just kind of scroll through the Bible. We turn somewhere, okay? And the baby's feet were like pointed out and all these things. It's like she's going to fall. It's like, okay, straighten her up. Get into a specific passage that you're going to study that day. And then maybe you'll be, we'll talk about daughterhood, okay? That's, no, guys, we didn't do that. She said, oh, this is my baby girl. She's imitating her mom. Look at that. And, and so what you got to see when he's giving us this instruction to be imitators of God as beloved children, your status is really important to understand there. This is Ephesians 1 through 3. Go back and just marinate in that. That is how we become children of God. And, th- and that is not just uh, we, we are children of God and then we become imitators. That word be imitators is a become Okay, it's not a past tense thing. It's something that you are growing and you're growing as an imitator of God. Okay, and, and this is just an amazing thing. I don't want you to be discouraged in that process. If you're not yet uh, a perfect imitator of God, then I want you to not be discouraged. But it still remains, uh, how is it that we're supposed to imitate God? He's, we're imitating him as our heavenly father, but not his omnipotence, not his omniscience. But he starts that verse by saying, therefore. And so what he does is he pulls back in the verse before, which says, forgive others as God has forgiven you. So what are you imitating about God? His forgiveness towards other people, the way he reconciles. And then he says this, uh, by as his beloved children, as loved, being loved children, walk in love. So what is it about God that you're supposed to imitate? Not his omnipotence or his omniscience or his omnipresence. What you are imitating is his heart of love. This is wild, because honestly, as I was thinking about it, just this should be a wild thing to you, because now you are able to engage in what I like, what a, is there a more lofty aspiration than to imitate the creator God of the universe, to walk in his likeness? That is an amazing thing that you, and you can do that anywhere. You can do that. My, my friend Amber, she's here. She can do that in, in these really hard nursing settings, right? You can do that if you're a stay-at-home mom. You can do that in the, in the oil and gas business. You can do that uh, at a kid's soccer game. You can do this in any place. Uh, but what you're doing is as lofty of an aspiration, as lofty of a thing as there is to do imitating God himself. And so what I want us to see is what this means to walk in love. So keep going. And he says, be imitators of God. And, and, uh, and then he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so that walk in love where we're imitating God and walking that out, that walk, the word is, he uses it as a metaphor for kind of living our lives, okay? And all of the different uh, steps that you are taking day to day, day in and day out, that is your, how you're walking and living your life, okay? And so you're supposed to make a practice of, a a habit of, a life of love, and that in some ways can sound like very hallmarky, you know, like very like mushy or maybe like, uh, like peace, love and whatever, you know, uh, like it can sound sort of vague. Walk in love, man. Uh, and that's only because our word for love, I think, is vague. 
So we, in our English language, are a bit, uh, we just kind of cram in tons of meaning to that. I love chocolate chip cookies. I love justice initiatives. I love my wife. I love, um, what, I'm trying to think of something else I love. Like, t- like a certain TV show that you, I love Parks and Rec, whatever it might be, okay? I don't know what you love. But we kind of cram in so much, and so it can be kind of vague to walk in love. Okay, but the love that we are called to make a habit of living is this agape kind of love because the, the Greek is not vague on that. There's a bunch of different ways that they're describing this love and this love is an agape, God-like love that you are called now to walk in, okay? And, uh, and so it's a self-sacrificing love. Paul won't let us decide for ourselves what this kind of love looks like. He's not gonna just kind of be like, walk in love and kind of just see what you decide with that. He says, uh, walk in love, and, and then he gives us a pattern for love, okay? And the pattern is a person. The pattern for love is a person. It said he gave, walk in love as Christ loved us. You want to know what the love that you're called to walk in, the habit in your life that you're called to live out? It's like Jesus loved us. And how did he love us? He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And uh, so he gave himself up for us. This this is one of my favorite things about the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, I, I haven't mentioned this in a message. I haven't mentioned Narnia in like a lot of messages, and so I feel like I've Stacked it up and waited my, my, waited my time, okay? So, uh, but the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think it draws out one particular thing. If C.S. Lewis is telling us one thing, he's telling us about the atonement, okay? He's telling us about the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus in that book, I think. And um, it's not an allegory. It's not all one-to-one, okay? There's one thing I think he's trying to teach us about, and it's about the Lion of Judah, okay? And G- Jesus, so if you remember in that story, even the movie, I think the movie did a good job of capturing this moment where this huge lion, huge lion was just strolling up to the stone table is what, is what Narnia was called, the place where he was going to get killed. And next to him were all of these creatures and enemies of Aslan. And as he's walking down this aisle, they're just yelling at him and screaming at him. And they, were, they seemed so courageous and so bold until he looked at them. And then they would just pull back and cower in fear. And that is exactly the way it is with Jesus. I think that's like one of the best, because when we see Jesus of Nazareth, he's, 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 he's beaten up, he's torn up, he's carrying our cross up Calvary, and he's stumbling and falling, Simon of Cyrene's having to pick it up and carry it. We see him, and it's almost like he's being defeated in that moment. But you're misunderstanding the gospel, you're misunderstanding Jesus' love if you don't understand that he was giving himself up freely. That's what was happening in that moment. He wasn't getting taken over. The plan wasn't getting derailed. The plan was being fulfilled. Think, look at this, John 10, verses 14 through 18. This is Jesus talking about how he gave him, he's going to give himself up. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. 
That is the kind of love that we are called to walk in, a love that says, I'm going to lay down my life. Nobody took that from Jesus. He laid down his life. He gave himself up for us. And so it's Jesus' love that we are called to imitate then, to walk in, and it's an initiating and sacrificial kind of love. Okay, that's what it is. That's what I would say this love is initiating and sacrificial. Those are two words that I think are helpful to, to pull this out, and it's, and it's for somebody's highest good. When we're talking about an agape, self-sacrificing love, you are initiating and sacrificing for somebody's highest good. You want to know if you're walking in love, okay? So just track your actions and your interactions with, I was uh, interaction with my wife last night where I would, could see there was, two, there was two roads to walk down. One is a road of love and the other is not. And one would choose me sacrificing, initiating for her highest good. And it's not, it's not their version of what's best. If we did this, then our kids would, I don't know that any of them would have survived, okay? Um, because quite frankly, they're all wanting things that, it's not just giving into the desires of another person to say, oh, you want this, so I'm just going to do this for you because it will make you happy. Love is sacrificing and initiating for the highest good of somebody else, for God's interests in their life. Okay, and so there's a lot of ways that this can be lived out. Um, my, my, I told you already, my mother-in-law came in town this week, um, and it's not because she was scheduled to come in town. When my wife got sick and our house was just in total disarray because we're trying to keep a newborn healthy, a toddler happy, and my wife healthy, okay, we're trying to make all these things happen, and, and the, our resources were limited, Okay, and so what my mother-in-law did is she said, hey, I'm going to stop everything I'm doing. I'm going to lay down all my other plans for this week, all the other things that I have going on. I'm going to take off whatever days of work, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to meet you in this. Okay? Other people actually around this church did the same thing. They're like, hey, let me help you out. Let me support you. Let me, let me give sacrificially. Let me initiate sacrificially for your highest good in this moment. So that, that they can look like that. Um, it can look like the disposition that you have towards your spouse in a conflict. It can look like couples that are fostering kids. There, there's couples like right in front of me who are fostering kids. This foster care is not glamorous even a little bit. Foster care is so costly and hard and scary. What families are doing when they're inviting kids into their lives is so costly. But it is such a good picture of love. I'm going to initiate, I'm going to sacrifice for your highest good. I'm going to make sure you have a family, a home, when nobody else is creating a home for you. That is love. That's what love looks like. That's a picture of Jesus' sacrificial initiating love for us. And so here's the deal. What, what walking in love at the very core of that looks like, if you want to just kind of boil it down, I've been trying to get at the core of it, it's uh, walking in love is to be radically others-focused. And it is impossible to do on your own, so don't just try to think, walk out of here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to muster up, I'm going to walk in love this week, y'all. Okay, you're going to walk back in here next week and we're going to do some counseling, okay? Because that's not, that's not how you do it, but that is what's at the heart of love. So just know that that's there. The heart of love is a radical, uh, a radical others-focusedness, if, if you can say that. That's what makes love stand out in such a dark uh, world and what makes it stand in such dark, uh, stark contrast to lust. Love is others focused. And so what does that make love? Why, or lust? Why is lust the opposite of love? 
Okay, so we're, we're trying to see that our stride is a stride of love. When we're walking in love, that means that we're walking away from lust. So what is, what, why is lust the opposite of love? Why are we even talking about lust? Like, keep reading, and this is where Paul goes. He says, imitate your father, okay, by walking in love like Jesus. And then the next thought that the Spirit gives him to walk into, but, it, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as, pro, as is proper among the saints. So he goes right from that place of walking in love to what I w- I'm going to say is, is calling out the opposite side of that, which is lust, sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness. And now some of this is sexual. It's not all sexual, actually, okay? So just, we're going to get to that. But the first part, you need to see that there, like, what's the big deal with sexual sin? Why would Paul go right into this space of saying, hey, walk in love, don't walk in, in, uh, in this sexual immorality? Why is he going to go right there? Because sexual, so look at the word, sexual immorality, that word is actually porneia. Okay, the word he's talking about there is a, a word called pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. And it's actually kind of an all-encompassing sexual immorality word. Okay, it's not just one, it's not just one kind of uh, thing. It's, it's, it's one expression of sexual sin. But it, just, to, just because it's there and because I, don't, I think it's actually an epidemic in our culture, we, we need to address pornography because it's a huge expression of sexual sin in our culture. And it's, even if it's not itself the sin, it's, it's, it's connected in a derivative fashion, okay? And um, it, the, the stats on this, again, like if you have younger kids, like 11 years old would be the age, the average age that kids are exposed to pornography. And that's like higher than the numbers that I've heard otherwise. Younger than 10 would be in the UK. Like, the stats are just staggering on the, the frequency, the availability. It's, it's like a, it's, it's everywhere in our culture. And it's like a huge numbers, not just of men, but of men and women that are being exposed to pornography. And it's this crazy thing because the culture wants to tell you it's going to help somehow create a healthier attitude or activity around sin. But that's not the case. What pornography is doing is actually distorting, um, distorting our uh, sexual expression more and more. It's not making it healthier and healthier. It's making it more and more distorted. The folks who have committed the most heinous sexual crimes, do you know that they did not wake up one day and all of a sudden decide to commit a sexual crime? The people who were in jail were actually surveyed. 100% of them looked at pornography related to the crime that they committed beforehand. 100% of them. They fed a desire, and that desire grew more and more and more, and the appetite of the desire became stronger and darker and stronger and darker. That is the way that sin works. That is the way that the hook of pornography works in your life, okay? So if, you, if you're actually struggling with pornography, if, if, that's, if that's a wrestle in your life, if, if that's an addiction that you are, are wrestling through, don't, the, the, I'm going to tell you this later, but don't, don't do that by yourself. Don't wrestle by yourself with that. There are some really... Um, healthy ways that we can come alongside you in that space. But pornography is just one way that sexual sin is showing up. It's one way that it's showing up in our lives. Okay, the problem is when we engage with sex outside of the context for which God created it. Okay, and this is, this is what we forget. This is what culture kind of like can't wrap their mind around is that God created it. And it's not just about doing bad things sexually. God's not just like 
trying to just keep you inside of these boundaries because he's like, hey, I made it like this, so stay in there. It's about trying to not get from sex what God never intended to give you. That's why sexual sin is this huge deal. It's really close. It's, it's one of the most vulnerable places that you can enter into in life, okay? It's, uh, and, and the misuse of sex is grievous to God. He thinks sex is good, okay? God thinks sex is good. This is culturally a very com- confounding thing. And, not, and it would be like, hey, man, Christians, they just are missing out on the good life when it comes to sexual activity. But God would say sex is good. And the, it's the false narrative that would exist around Christian attitude. Christian attitude towards sex is that we think it's dirty, okay, that we think it's bad and wrong. There's, a, um, there's an article written by uh, a guy who was a movie producer, and by some string of circumstances, he ended up actually being a pornography movie producer. And he wrote an article about how, uh, what he learned about pornography. And really, not just by filming that, but he actually uh, entered into that lifestyle himself. His wife left him. He gave himself fully to trying to pursue all that the world would say you could find in sex. And here's what he said. I think we have it up here. Ultimately, porn is wrong not because it shows too much, but because it shows too little of the human person. Porn turns sex into a commodity. Porn reduces the great mystery and sanctity of human sexuality to a trivial activity. And that's not just pornography. That is all sexual sin. It tries to commoditize this thing that God meant for so much more. The way that I've heard it described that's helpful is that it's like fire, okay? Um, if I just light fire and throw it anywhere, any which way, is that going to create life or destroy life? That is not It's going to burn somebody. People get hurt when fires are not in the places they're meant to be. Fire inside of a fireplace, fire inside of your oven, fire in all of these places actually brings life and goodness and health and joy and good food and lots of great things. But outside of that space, it is destructive and harmful. And so hating sexual sin, just so you know, when you're saying, I'm not going to engage, I'm going to pull my life away from sexual immorality, I'm going to flee from that, which is what the scriptures tell you, I'm going to flee from that. Hating sexual sin is not the same as hating sex. So just hear me on that. Uh, Pastor Ben Stewart, he said it this way, I thought it was really helpful. That would be like me saying, like if I said I hate drunk driving, if you, if you responded saying, hey man, why, why are you so down on driving? Like, what's the big deal about driving? No, I don't, I hate drunk driving. Why? It destroys lives of everybody involved. It leaves destruction in its wake. That's why I hate drunk driving. If I said I hate child abuse, and you're like, man, what's your problem? Why don't you love kids? I do love kids. It's because I love kids that I hate when they're abused. Sexual sin is about not just hating sex, it's about hating a misuse of sex, okay? And so I would put all of this sexual sin underneath the banner of lust. And that, most, that word, if you're ever in like an accountability group and some guy's like, I'm struggling with lust, you know, it's like, it's like such a catch-all category, okay? And so what we're talking about most of the time is like this sexual desire, and I think it's right to zero in on that, to call out sexual desire where it's outside of what God has called it to be, Okay? Um, I think it's right because scripture does. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Paul, Paul actually makes a point to say sexual sin is really, really grievous. It's, it's, it's going after your own body. Okay? But, but the lust we see in this passage goes beyond sexual lust, okay? Uh, impurity is the next word that he brings up that's actually still related to sexual sin, but then he adds this word covetousness. Did you see it? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Did you see that? Okay, and so what is covetousness? Um, this is a desire not just for sex in the way that God didn't intend it, but lust for anything to satisfy your soul, your soul in a way that only God can. In the Ten Commandments, God says, hey, don't covet not just that person's body, but their car or their house or their money or their power or their comfort or their name, anything about them. You're longing for, you're looking for, grasping at, coveting something you're trying to bring into your soul to satisfy it in the way that only I can. Do you see that? And so it's not just sexual sin it is, uh, or sexual lust. It's lust after anything, trying to get any, from anything that which God did not intend. And so uh, in verse 5, Paul calls this idolatry idol worship. And he explains that to live a life of worship for a lesser God is life, um, to live a life of worship for lesser gods is the life of those who don't have an inheritance in the kingdom. When you're, when you're actually living out this worship of lesser gods, you're acting like you don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6, you will read it. For you, for, many, for you may be sure of this. Why is this a big deal? You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God hates this stuff. And it doesn't make any sense for children of light to link their lives up with people who are living like they don't have an, like, like they're looking for a reward in this life. There's an invitation to enter the kingdom of Christ and God, but we can't bring lesser gods into that. When we walk into the kingdom of God, we leave all our lesser gods behind. The world is looking for a reward now from anything that it can get a reward from. And that's not our, uh, that's not how we act and how we live as inheritors of the kingdom. And so just a quick note on this. Um, if you're here and you are struggling with sin, which I would actually expect to be most of you, you're struggling with some kind of sin. If you're struggling especially with some, one of the sins that you, the Spirit's bringing up and convicting you of right now, drawing, just, just leaning into your soul to say, man, that is darkness, isn't it? If that's happening, don't read that as your condemnation. Don't read the fact that, you, that those who don't, who practice those things don't have an inheritance. Don't read that as your condemnation if you're really struggling. If you're really struggling against these sins, if you're really uh, actively fighting against them in your life, uh, not just trying to hold on to two different objects of worship, know this, there's an eternal difference between a son of disobedience and a son who's fighting against disobedience. There's an eternal difference between somebody who is a son of disobedience, son, of, son or daughter, and a son or, son or daughter who is uh, fighting against disobedience. That's a big difference. John Piper says it like this, the mark of a Christian isn't that he wins every battle, but that he keeps fighting until the end of the war. That's what a Christian is. Okay, so don't read that as your condemnation. 
We battle against lust, against these desires of trying to get things into our heart that are not God. And, because, and so we battle against them because it is the opposite of love, because lust places self above everything, okay? Love dies to self, lust worships self, okay? That guy, David Foster Wallace, in his speech, he continued on talking about self-worship. He said, the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums along merrily in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom, the freedom all to be lords of our tiny, skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation. It's a self-worship, not a dying to self. Love and lust are like light and dark. Love dies to self. Lust worships self. And that's why we are called to walk in love and walk out of lust. They are opposed like light and dark. And so Paul brings the truth that we're children of God into this idea of light and dark and says to be a child of God is to be a child of light. And that means that our lives don't harbor darkness or collaborate with darkness in others. Okay, that's, the, that's what's going to come out of this. If you're a child of light, okay, then that, is, that means your life doesn't harbor darkness or collaborate with those who do. Look at verse 7, okay? Um, it says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I don't think this is about not having relationships with people who are not Christians or not having relationships with people who are uh, kind of these dirty, sinful people, okay? Uh, It can't be that. It can't mean that. Because Jesus himself made a habit of spending time around people labeled as sinners. You know what Jesus' nickname was? Friend of sinners. He was their friend. And you don't get to be friends by never being around them, okay? So there's got to be something happening here. This, this, this partnering with darkness is about not collaborating, co-worshiping, co-lusting with those who are looking for reward, not of our kingdom, okay? And so he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay, so he gives you these two different competing things. Either you're going to take part in them or you're going to expose them, okay? So he juxtaposes these, and so where do we begin exposing darkness, okay? Where do we start doing that? Does that mean you're going to walk out of here and you're like, got a flashlight and you know, metaphorically just shining it all, going around your neighborhood and looking for all the sinners, and you're going to just like spotlight them, you know? Have you ever been hunting with like a spotlight? You're just spotlighting things and freezing them? Is that what you're supposed to do with this? Please don't do that with this. Where you begin exposing darkness is in yourself. You want to expose darkness? You want to cease partnering with the works of darkness? Expose that in yourself. Expose that in yourself. Confess that. Bring that into the light. We're, we have created these discipleship group, this structure. If you're not in one and you, want to, you need help getting in one, talk to me. Let's do that. We're, we're, we are dead set on creating a space for you to expose the darkness in your heart. Confess that. Bring that into the light. Be known. Expose that. Here's why you can do that. It says, when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. What does that mean? 
when you do that, when you bring that not just into any light, but into the light of the gospel, it will transform you. It will transform you. There's a documentary called Night on Earth, and uh, it's kind of about what you would think, Night on Earth. Okay, and, uh, and what, this, what they do is they kind of just got these super high-tech cameras that can go into like the Serengeti, like into these places where it's very, very, very low light. It's not no light, but it's low light, and these cameras have ultra-sensitive receptors so they can pick up the slightest of things, and it makes it look like daylight. And it's pretty fascinating to watch. Sometimes they're using thermal cameras, which we can get into light in a minute, like, or some other time. It's infrared, so it's picking up photons that are kind of lower than we can actually see with our eyes, so it's still light of some kind, but they're exposing what's happening in the darkness. And you know what's funny about that show is that, so Night on Earth is a documentary, and then right below that is uh, Night on Earth, like director's cut, how they filmed it. And so it's a documentary about a documentary, okay? And so I'm like, and I watched it, because I was like, how did they do that? Like, what are these cameras like? And that's what happens as you begin to expose light in yourself, you will be transformed and you will then be able to go into places and you will be able to expose darkness for what it is. As you expose that in yourself and you're transformed by light, you will actually be like these cameramen operating with the light of the gospel, able to carry that into very dark places and expose it for what it is. And so Jesus, he was the friend of sinners, but he didn't pretend that they weren't sinning. That's what made him so unique. He was the friend of sinners. He would go eat meals with these people whose lives look nothing like they're supposed to look. Their lives were so messed up and whacked out, they weren't even close. Jesus would go sit with them, talk to them, engage with them. But he didn't ever, he never pretended with them like they weren't living a life that's going to careen off into an eternity apart from God. He would tell them the truth. When he touches lepers, they don't get leprosy. That's what I love about Jesus. And when he encounters the dark, he lights it up. And so when we imitate our heavenly dad, when we walk in love, we're like Jesus and we light up dark places. Do you see that? And uh, the last thing we'll say is just uh, what David Foster Wallace keyed in on is that um, with all this worship talk was that worship will consume you. He says, for the lack of time, we won't read the quote, but he does a really good job of understanding actually the nuance of how Worship of power will end up making you feel weak or afraid. Worship of intellect will make you feel stupid or a fraud. Worship of beauty will make you feel like you're always ugly. The scriptures say it like this in Psalm 135. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. You Im- when you imitate, you will become like, and that is what you're worshiping. So let the light of the gospel shine into your soul and reveal where you're walking in self-centered lust. Where are you walking in self-centered lust? Actually, ask yourself, let, ask the Spirit to show you where's my, where are my motives, my thoughts, my attitudes and actions being motivated not by love, but by lust for something else, a worship of self, not a worship of God. Ask him. It's really important. David Foster Wallace, several, he gave that speech in 2005. He committed suicide in 2008 or 2009. He took his own life. His life spiraled further and further into darkness, and ultimately it consumed him. He was right. It does consume you.
It isn't enough just to know that you're a worshiper, that you're worshiping something. It matters what you worship. It ma- it's of infinite impor- importance. And so here, this church, God is light. In Christ, you are sons and daughters of light in the Lord. You're not sons and daughters of light because you kind of like try really hard and do a great job at it. In the Lord, it's your union with Jesus, your your vitality of connection with him, that is what makes you luminescent. In Christ, you are sons and daughters of light. Live in the light, for anything that becomes visible is light. And he ends by saying, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So what, what would you do from this message? Where the Spirit is shaking you, waking you up, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. And not just let some kind of piercing light of judgment shine on you. Come out into this light, because what light is it? Christ will shine on you. You don't have to be afraid of coming into the light. You should be afraid of staying in the dark. The one who will shine on you is the one who gave himself up for you. So you can come out into that space, say what's true about your own heart, expose darkness in you, and God will begin to use you to expose that in others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, um, would you meet us here in this moment in ways that are bigger than us? Would all of your omnipresence and omnipotence and om- omniscience, God, would all that come to bear on us in this way, but also would your love come to bear on us that the great one, the transcendent God is also our imminent Uh, close, close Father, that you love us, that you gave yourself up for us, Jesus. Would your love uh, mark us, and would you help us then as your beloved children to walk in love towards one another? Would you help us to walk away from lust and into the light? Father, would you use even this message somehow by your grace, would you use this to spark revival of joyful worship through the repentance from darkness, repentance from sin of sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness where that is lingering in the crevices of our hearts in our worship. Would you draw that out, Holy Spirit, and give us, uh, bring us to a repentance of that and would you get glory for it, Jesus? We're asking this in the name of Jesus and believing that you're able to do so much more than we ask or think, Father. Amen.